Welcome to the Retail Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and today we're talking about retail rebranding with Ryan McGinnis, Director of Marketing for Notarize. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shelby. And thanks for being back on the show. I know we've talked before. Uh, you've got a lot of fascinating insights about um, about marketing, just because, I mean, this is, this is what you live and breathe. So let's talk about rebranding. That is on people's minds nowadays. We're seeing all of these Uber commercials, for example. For the outsider that doesn't know the reasons why they're rebranding, will you explain a little bit of what's happening there and, and kind of uh, what that shift is is really signifying? Yeah, sure. I think uh, rebranding as a topic can be a bit scary because I think people look at the impact of rebranding as potentially company shattering. If you do it really well, it has uh, the power to fundamentally shape your trajectory in a good way. But if you don't do it well and you create something that is a little bit more abstract and not something that somebody you know, really resonates with, they can, it can really hurt you. So I think what you're seeing at Uber as a use case is for a long time they had an icon. It started off as you and then it started to kind of get into uh, this circle that had a, a square in the middle and, a, middle and a line. And they were trying to kind of create this brand out of an icon. And what they realized was a lot of their customers, even their drivers, didn't associate the brand with the icon, but with the name. So a lot of the drivers ended up putting stickers in their cars, not of the icons, but of the name, so that when somebody was you know, trying to flag down an Uber driver, or if it was somebody that was relatively new to the platform, because I think a lot more uh, you know, folks are coming onto the platform just as rapidly as they were a few years ago, uh, who have maybe never used any kinds of, of apps like this on their phone before. It's a lot easier to recognize and feel uh, trusting to something that you can see and associate right away. So they wanted to be more of a platform. They're moving away from the app. They want to be a mobility platform is kind of what their uh, go-to-market was in terms of this rebrand. So it is the name today, a lot, a lot of the explanations as to, you know, kind of how they chose the redesign and the story behind it is a a lot more about the background of how they got to where they are and where they want to go. And so that opens up the doors for them to get into electric scooters, you know, more autonomous vehicles because they are the mobility platform now, as opposed to that app that does ride sharing. Are they looking at some of those electric scooters as part of their, their expansion? Uh, I think they are. I mean, obviously, with the success we've seen of Bird and Lime, yeah. uh, these companies are facing similar regulatory issues, and it would make a ton of sense for Uber to do the same thing or acquire one of them because of the fact that they've already had to deal with and probably have the infrastructure in place to take another product like that to market. Right. They've they've fought those battles before, and they know the the landscape and a lot of what's happening then, I guess the maybe the inefficiency in going to market with some of the smaller companies is that they are navigating this as if it was the first time to do this. They're kind of recreating the wheel in some sorts. Yeah, exactly. And and think about another thing too is is that so much of their thesis has been predicated on ride sharing in cars. And as the ways we prefer to move around our cities, our towns changes, uh, whether that's electric skateboarding, scooters, uh, even you know if Elon Musk succeeds mm-hmm. uh, with the boring company, underground transportation, the means in which you get from point A to point B is going to evolve so so much that tying yourself to a specific uh, thesis around that you know rides uh, cars are really expensive to own. Let's share them with other people. Uh, that's going to have to evolve to say let's share other means of transportation with each other. Let's benefit from different modes of mobility so that we can choose how we want to get around. And Uber will be the platform to help us do that. 
I know we're, we're talking about rebranding from a, a marketing standpoint, but I'm just curious your take on on Travis Kalanick and how how his exit. Mm. I'm just curious your take on that. I mean, you know, this new CEO, he is night and day from Travis. What do you think that um, that's signaling to to the public? I think that it's signaling a fresh start. Uh, for a long time, I think that, you know, both internally and externally, people viewed Uber uh, as kind of a brand that would take advantage of, of either its employees from a culture perspective or its drivers from, you know, paying them fairly and, and giving them, you know, basically great ways to live so you don't have to drive 24 hours a day in order to, to make ends meet. And I think with the new CEO, what he's really done is, is he said, we have to care a lot more about our brand than we have previously. And in order to do that, you know, not only do we have to start fresh, but that has to have a story that's important to why people rely on us. Right. And I think he's done a great job so far. And I think you're already seeing, even with uh, the evolution of its of its executive leadership team, I think uh, the information just put out an article about how you know diverse it was and how much they're making, how much of an effort they're making to make sure that uh, it stays that way. I think that's also really important because whatever the sentiment is in a big company of its culture, that's kind of what comes through in the product development, because these are the stories that inspire uh, a lot of the people that use the product, both on the driver's side and consumer side. You mentioned digging into the why of why consumers are using the product and then also uh, why the drivers are driving. How important is answering that question of finding your why in marketing and rebranding? Super important, especially when you're dealing with a two-sided marketplace like that, because obviously you have to have drivers to fulfill the needs of the consumers. And then obviously, if there is a ton of riders, but no consumer interest, then, you know, obviously one side prevails in, in not a good way. But the, the reason why the stories are really important is, is because it's, it's the reason why people choose to go to Starbucks over Dunkin' Donuts, or it's the reason why people choose to shop for Nike shoes uh, over Adidas. You believe in the brand, you believe in the story, it makes you feel a certain kind of way. You have a particular experience that you know really sticks with you, that you choose to fly one airline over another. Uh, these are all things, and I think it's the evolution of marketing where there's so much more focus on branding today than there has ever been before. Obviously, you know, 50 years ago with the Ogilvy's and the big advertisers, I think uh, messaging was a big part of it. So here's our logo, but we're going to catch you at some sort of creative that's going to resonate with uh, your socioeconomic background, the way that you, you know, live your life, kind of a certain kind of lifestyle. Uh, we're going to hit one of those three things now, but Today, it's it's much more about, can I create a brand that's synonymous with what we do and lives on its own? Because a lot of, a lot of taglines today are going away from logos. Uh, if you're looking at even Starbucks, for example, for a long time, they had Starbucks coffee as part of their logo. And now today, it's just the logo because not only do they know that the logo is synonymous with Starbucks, but they're trying to do more than just coffee, right? They're trying to get into... Uh, all of the baked goods and kind of what is that experience like when you walk into a cafe. So uh, it's super important. Are there other um, other examples? I, I didn't, I hadn't noticed that they had taken off the coffee from Starbucks. Are there other brands that have dropped the single, you know, moniker of coffee or donuts or whatever, and they're going broader? Yeah. I mean, obviously the most recent one is Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts has removed donuts from uh, their brand. And I think it was a natural evolution for them, right? I'm based in Boston. So uh, of course, here you have this 
kind of battle between Dunkin' Donuts coffee drinkers and Starbucks coffee drinkers. And there was that huge SNL skit with Casey Affleck <laughs> doing the same thing. But uh, what's interesting about their evolution is that they realized that their customer base, their core user base has kind of been this blue collar working class family that knows that they can get good coffee for a good price and it's reliable. And what they also realized is that people don't buy as many donuts as they would think. I think um, Paul Murray, who runs digital at Dunkin' Donuts, once said that uh, people buy you know, the coffee first and then the food comes on top of it. It's not like somebody comes to Boston and says, I need to have a donut from Dunkin' Donuts. Like that is the reason why I go there. And so it's interesting in their evolution because they've become Dunkin' Brands. So they've done all the work for the last you know, 30, 40 years on trying to get this brand so that the, the icon, the color scheme of the orange and you know, kind of that pinkish purple color, that is synonymous with Dunkin' Donuts and people know that when they look at it. And then it gives them the ability to expand. Do they wanna kind of go the Starbucks route and offer more of these baked items or do they wanna get into more of the experiential place where they do great things with nitro and cold brew and they kind of have this bar set up with all the taps in the store and it becomes much more of an experience than kind of a transactional uh, place where you go in line with construction workers and painters and people that kind of have built your neighborhood for you. What's the inherent risk in doing that and taking off the one like identifying moniker that people know you by? Yeah, I think the the immediate risk that comes to mind for me is that there is a sense of nostalgia that goes away when that is gone. It's something that, you know, for people like my grandfather who go through the line and just say, I want a medium regular coffee, thank you. That's like literally part of his uh, just one breath, same thing all the time. Uh, that is synonymous with kind of how they've lived their lives the last 40, 50 years and getting a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts in the styrofoam cup with the icon and, and the tagline. And I think that there's the risk of that people will kind of lose that identity with it. To be honest with you, I think it has more upside than downside for them, especially when competing against more of a lifestyle brand like Starbucks. No, granted, they're going after two different uh, markets in a sense and from a marketing perspective kind of tying this back into kind of why I like love to watch this is that Starbucks has pigeonholed themselves in a sense of you know Starbucks pertains to a certain kind of demographic that lives a certain lifestyle and has kind of left the rest of the coffee landscape open for people to do great things so whether you get into really specialized coffee making like Blue Bottle or you're kind of doing the mass production low-cost model like Dunkin' Donuts, they've kind of opened up the rest of the coffee space for people to kind of go after the rest of the market. And I think it's smart by them. And I actually think they're going to take up a lot of, of the market share that exists today with other brands. Going back to, to Uber, um, another thing that you had mentioned is that the new CEO recognized that the, the drivers couldn't be just used like commodities, that they are drivers that are trying to earn a living. Um, and that has larger implications for the entire gig economy. What do you think the impact will be in Uber trying to take care, take better care of its drivers? And then do you think it's going to spread to the other gig and shared economy companies? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is they're going to have to start treating drivers like employees. Um, obviously, we've seen that with Microsoft recently coming out and saying that its partners uh, needed to offer similar benefits around paternity and, and maternity leave. And I think you're going to start to see similar benefits to Uber drivers in the sense that, you know, maybe it's travel if they need to move somewhere that allows them to be drivers or it's healthcare or 
if, especially for people that are doing this full time, there needs to be a lot more uh, security in their jobs. So I think it's super important for them to try to set those employees up well. And, and who knows, they might start to own, I think a lot of the value prop in Uber is that they don't own any of the vehicles. They own the software and they give people the ability to use their cars as a way to make money. But maybe there's a world in which, like we were talking about earlier with electric scooters, they go ahead and they buy, you know, Bird or they go ahead and they buy a Tesla or, you know, whatever happens. And then they own all of these cars. Can the drivers simply use other people's cars and not have to have their own kind of like be responsible for that because that was the biggest hindrance in the taxi industry, which is you bought this medallion for 100, 200,000 at some points in, you know, its success, it was over a million dollars to buy this medallion that would give you and your family for generations to come the ability to, to make tons of money as a taxi driver. And then that turned into a bit of a monopoly with certain people owning many medallions and leasing them out. So uh, Uber decided to say, well, there's a lot more cars in the world than taxis. So let's just have people benefit off of that. But at some point, you're going to have to think about the fact that not only from an infrastructure standpoint, it doesn't make sense to continue to, you know, make people buy cars to use them to help other people remove their cars. It kind of seems like uh, paying Peter to or stealing from Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Because yeah, I mean, I guess the the very, very initial premise was that you're going somewhere. So why don't you just share a ride with somebody else, give somebody else a ride on the way? And or at least that's the very first initial impression I had. I don't know if that's actually accurate. If that was the the initial go to market that you're basically just renting out extra space in your car. Yeah, I mean, the way I mean, like the original thesis was making black cars more accessible. And it was, you know, do you want to basically have a Escalade, uh, a limo-esque experience that doesn't require you to go through a website or call somebody who's probably um, doing a bunch of other things on the on the side to help coordinate? It was like, I need a car on the higher end. And that's kind of how they backed into the general market as opposed to Lyft, which kind of started to your point about saying, that's why they came out with Lyft Line, which is essentially Uber Pool to the point where you're going from point A to point B and it doesn't make sense for everybody to have their own dedicated drivers. If there's enough space in the car, why can't you all just go together? And that model, I think, is becoming more and more uh, favored, heavily favored with uh, folks who obviously don't have a ton of budget to get around, who maybe use these apps uh, much more frequently for commuting purposes. Uh, because of the fact that it just makes a lot more sense for them economically and for the environment as well. If you're, you know, putting less cars on the road, if you're taking advantage of more of these shared services, ultimately there are being, you know, there's less traffic, there's less people, unless you're just kind of driving around looking for rides, uh, there's ultimately less uh, of these cars on the road. But I like kind of like, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to have, as there's more people coming up and learning how to drive and the natural evolution is you learn, you get your license and you get a car and, and more and more of this is uh, still taking place. So I think a lot of these companies, and they're thinking about it the right way, I'm sure, behind the scenes, but a lot of them are going to have to move from a car-first model to kind of a, a broader services offering so that you know, if you still continue to maintain the fact that there's going to be ride sharing with cars, you also have to heavily invest in maybe it's the electric scooters, maybe it's electric skateboards, maybe it's the uh, the bicycles, because I know that, you know, obviously these ride sharing services are getting into bike rentals as well. So you're trying to basically broaden your portfolio. If you think about it as from like an investing perspective, you're diversifying your portfolio to offer any means of transportation for commuters, for people to get around the, their cities how they want to. 
Right. Well, and there's, uh, you started to mention this earlier about people who are not that familiar with the platform. They didn't, one, they were already uncomfortable in, in this brand new experience, but then looking for that car that just has a very understated Times New Roman looking you on the, on the car instead of something that was more outwardly identifying itself as Uber. I, I think though, with the electric scooters and the electric skateboards and even the bicycles, those still seem like there's a little bit of a step or a um, an obstacle to entry for the regular people. I mean, I don't see my mom using any of those. She's still going to use a car. So how does Uber take advantage of the beginners in ride sharing and still make it accessible for everybody? Yeah. So I think they're they're going off of reputation, which is they are a ride sharing company first and foremost and historically they've done that through cars and so like you mentioned about your mom like i think of family members who have just started using uber whether it be for work or just you know cheaper than a cab uh, in different cities like las vegas or you know new york or whatnot i know that for them the the icon of the old logo didn't make much sense as much sense as the actual four-letter word that is Uber. So I think the rebrand was targeted primarily at people kind of going back to this brand affinity who recognize that four-letter word more than the icon. And it's also way more beneficial for new users of older generations that are saying, okay, maybe I'm coming to uh, Orlando and I want to get an Uber to the airport. I've never downloaded the app before. And I download the app and I say, okay, I'm even familiar with it when I see it in the app store. I trust it. I see the icon. Then the car comes up and the sticker is the same. And it's kind of all about making sure it's consistent, making sure the expectations, the the messaging, the logos. And I think that that's what the markets are going after. And the electric scooters thing is really trying to hit a new market of people that uh, I had mentioned people are still getting their licenses, they're getting their cars, but it's way less than historically because of the fact that before it used to be a signal of freedom. You get your license, you get a car, and you can get out of the house with your parents. Now I can, you know, be 16, 17, and I can just get an Uber away from my parents. <laughs> so there's there's really no need for you to have a car anymore. And what they've realized, especially in cities, it's a, it doesn't make as much sense for you to get an Uber every time you need to go somewhere, especially in Boston, where most of the city is walkable. It might be a lot easier for me to grab a Lime scooter or to rent a bike or to even buy an electric skateboard if I'm going to a pretty you know, straight path to where I need to go and, and I can wear a helmet and, and get there safely. So uh, the, the scooters and the bikes like that market is definitely playing more towards you know younger generation commuting folks, people that live in uh, urban areas, cities where a lot of the modes of transportation with cars are actually just much more ineffective with traffic. And then the, the icon and the logo, I think, is to maintain that that brand relevancy as new users come on the platform, and then it gives them the ability to expand and not be pigeonholed into you know kind of one area of go to market. Right. I mean, it's it's multifaceted then. So it's expanding both in the younger generations and the older generations, and it's just giving them their preferred mode of transportation. Exactly. You mentioned Tesla. Do you think that could happen? I mean, I, I thought Elon would never go anywhere, but he's in some trouble right now. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough spot to be in. Obviously, uh, it seems like he has the board support, and they don't really have the infrastructure in place to support him. As a, there's no number two. There's no, there's not, there's no one to really succeed him if if anything happens. But I think he's still one of the you know once in a lifetime. Yeah, innovators and, and thinkers and, and the things that he's coming up with from the boring company to Tesla to even SpaceX. Um, these are all things that, of course, now 
uh, Jeff Bezos is falling with uh, his outer space. I think it's supposed to call Blue Ocean. I think so. Um, yeah, they're doing something similar. But Elon Musk is the one who's who's doing all this groundbreaking stuff on his own. And, and granted, there probably needs to be uh, you know somebody who maybe follows him around or, or helps him right. <laughs> not feel like the whole world is on his shoulders. But he does take a lot on himself. And if you watch any interviews with him, you know one week he's been sleeping in an office on like a little teeny cot for two weeks to make sure the production is going as well as it as it has. And 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 what I think could happen, and and I don't know if anybody's made this speculation yet, but you know the stock price has dropped almost fifteen percent since the SEC came out and said they were suing him for that tweet. I think what you could see is somebody coming in. There were speculations of Apple acquiring uh, Tesla a long time ago because of their, uh, you know, Apple is a product company. Apple is a is a brand. Apple is something that is a company that's thought about autonomous vehicles before, and rather than partnering with like a GM or a, a Ford to go and lead that initiative. Uh, why not own the most innovative car company in the world right now? So, yeah, I think I think it makes a lot of sense for Uber as well. Um, I think that if Uber was to go public and that was something that was part of their, you know, IPO filing, I think that would be brilliant because then what you're getting is probably the most technologically advanced autonomous driving, you know, mechanism that Uber has developed in market. Granted, it still has a long way to go, but it's still the most advanced we've seen. And then so Uber now has access to all of these cars that can essentially drive themselves, you know, in a world where nobody drives cars anymore, as cars drive you, you could be able to say, I own a Tesla or I want somebody else's Tesla to come pick me up and I trust the fact that the car is going to get me to where I need to go. I think that would be really smart for how they think about you know, the next 20 years of transportation. Ryan, great insight. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more and listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries. Subscribe to articles, podcasts, and video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirthawk.